0: Shalom, you're listening to Live Internet Studies. This is episode number 190. My name is Ariel Ben Lyman Hanavi. Let's open with a word of prayer. Avino Malkin, our Father, our King. Thank you, Lord, once again for bringing us to a place where we can sit down and quiet our minds and our hearts and be still and listen to what you have to say. We want to study your words and we want to allow the Holy Spirit to help us to apply them. We want to um, allow the truths of your uh, word to penetrate deep into our hearts, into our minds, so that we can um, be affected by um, um, the power of the words. Help us, Lord, to continue to consciously uh, make an effort to press in and be uh, doers of the word, not just hearers only. We want to uh, lead lives that are pleasing to you, and we want to turn from sin and uh, be sure to continue to confess. Uh, that which is wrong in your sight. We want to um, uh, be uh, in a place where we can be usable, where our vessels can be usable uh, for your kingdom. So thank you, Lord, for this wonderful opportunity to not just um, share in the experience of studying your word, but to share with one another across the miles through this medium of the internet. We count it a blessing. Uh, Lord, just continue to raise us up, continue to heal us. Lord, you know, we've got prayer requests, uh, for those uh, uh, our loved ones who are, are very close to us, who are still um, going through whatever uh, in terms of health, uh, not feeling good, and Lord, we pray that you'll just, um, as the master physician, touch their body and heal them and uh, help them to feel better. And we'll, be, Lord, uh, we'll be careful to give you the praise and the glory for all of these things, B'shem Yeshua. Amen. Well, once again, uh, these are the live Internet studies brought to you week after week. My, uh, my name is Harobin Lyman Hanavi, and I uh, thank everyone for joining me, not just via the um, uh, the YouTube crowd and the um, the podcast, but those who join me week after week during these live studies. I'm so blessed to be able to share my thoughts with you, uh, the things that I've studied through the week and the things that um, the, the, the uh, Word of God is revealing to me, um, to be able to share them with you and to um, have you uh kind of uh gauge them and weigh them out and help me to figure out is that good, is that accurate, is that is that the right way to interpret scripture. So let's jump into our Matthew study. The study is entitled, um uh Judaism v Christianity are Judaism and Christianity incompatible with one another? And uh real quick, the study is uh a, a basically look at supersessionism replacement theology the idea that the church has replaced israel along with all of the um details that come along with that worldview meaning um the torah has been replaced by the new testament or the old testament has been replaced by the new testament people of israel have been replaced by the uh, gentile christian people of god or the body of messiah however you want to describe it um you know the law of moses out the law of christ is in uh israel's out uh, church is in, Judaism is out, Christianity is in. Th- those are the types of um, topics that um, come to the table when we're talking about uh, this idea of replacement theology and some forms of supersessionism. We're working from a passage you can see on your screen right now, which is Matthew 9, 14 through um, 17, uh, which is entitled, A Question About Fasting in the ESV. And we've noticed that there are some details to this story so it starts out with um uh, i'm gonna read it here in a second. It starts out with um Yeshua and his disciples uh actually attending um or or actually uh, uh fasting i'm sorry they're not fasting they're they're feasting when they should be fasting right um in other words, according to the religious leaders of Yeshua's day right the Pharisees in this um uh description this version um this rendering your disciples aren't doing the the social norm they're they're doing something different and we want to know why and so um yeshua proceeds to present according to luke's account a parable that contains two or three or four elements so there are these elements in the parable that we're going to read about that seem to lend support because yeshua doesn't um actually uh, interpret them for us like he does with other parables They seem to lend support to this idea that, um, in a nutshell, the old is out and the new is in. And Yeshua is bringing this radically new worldview to the first century Judaism that's incompatible with the existing worldview of Judaism, and thus the old of Judaism is being replaced because it's incompatible with the new of Christianity or something to that effect. So let's read the accounts. I'm going to read all three of them tonight, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And you're going to notice that Matthew, right away, Matthew and Mark... Are almost identical to one another in the details that they lay out Luke is the one that brings in this fourth element the very very last verse that you're gonna have to pay attention to that um, throws in a monkey wrench to the explanation of your standard allegorical Christian explanation that um, Christianity is replacing Judaism let's read them Um, a question about fasting according to Matthew chapter 9 starting verse 14 then the disciples of John came to him saying why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? Verse 15. And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, at this point, this is basically one answer to the immediate question of why aren't your disciples fasting? And his common sense answer, right? You use your brain answer, is. It's a wedding, right? You want, you want to rejoice, why would you fast? Right? That doesn't make any sense at all, this tradition of fasting. Not that it's inherently wrong, but it just doesn't seem to apply to the situation. Besides, Jesus is going to um, uh, uh, um, uh, teach in other places, not here though, but he's implying it here indirectly. I am the bridegroom of the wedding, this great wedding between the father and his bride, Israel. I am the bridegroom that the father has is is walking down the aisle and you know being married to my people Israel my bride and so this is a time of rejoicing right the long awaited promises that were given to Israel of old through the prophets that God would bring his um uh servant his suffering servant his uh his his um uh, anointed one to Israel, right? In other words, there was this messianic expectation uh, that was built up in, in first century Israel, and they were actually awaiting um, this messianic figure, the son of man spoken of in Daniel. Um, you know, um, so Yeshua's kind of stepping into that role. He's like, you know, you've been waiting for him. Uh, here I am. Right. I'm him. All right. Open your eyes. So that's the immediate, immediate answer is verse um, 15. But then, just in case uh, those who were listening to him have this discussion, in case they didn't get it, he then supplies these parabolic, parabolic uh, details, starting at verse 16. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Again, stop. This is common sense, right? We don't have to throw any allegory into the details to, for, this, for us to just understand that Yeshua is trying to kind of work on the same principle. Common sense is you do what what's the right thing at this point in time. The the application matches the need. Um, you uh, uh, rejoice at a wedding, right? Because the bridegroom and the bride are joining one another. So that's common sense. That's the right application is the rejoicing, not fasting. Likewise, um, introducing a, a brand new patch to um, an older garment uh, without any, uh, prep or conditioning or anything else is, uh, bad practice, right? So it's just, it's, it doesn't make any good sense. So that's the second element. And then thirdly, In verse 17, neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed, but new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. Again, use your brain, common sense, think it through. Yeshua is basically saying, even if we just ripped the allegory away from it and didn't leave a a room for a midrash or some type of a homily or anything like that, a deeper spiritual meaning what we might think of, um, just at the surface level, um introducing these two elements, you know, new wine and an old wineskin is going to spell disaster. So that's Matthew's rendering. When we turn to Mark, the same heading, if you notice in ESV, a question about fasting, is how Mark listed. Let me read Mark's version. Now, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? again same question common sense right they're just you would think that they would figure it out they probably already know but they're just asking i mean it's an innocent question in and of itself there's no need to push it into some um you know like the level of some of the religious leaders were testing yeshua to see if he had if he had authority to do certain things on the sabbath and they were trying to trap him and things like this this doesn't seem to be that case where they're trying to trap him with a trick question they're just really curious as to what's the deal right what are why are you and your disciples doing something that's not the norm for the day. As if and this is the part that kind of throws me off even, right? Why would you want to fast and kind of mourn during a wedding anyway, right? Um, you know, that that's kind of gloomy anyway. But nevertheless, starting in verse 19, Jesus says to them, "Can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast." And then Yeshua tells them in verse 20 that, you know, there's going to come a day and he's telling them of of his own that he's going to be leaving them, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast in the day, right? Once the bridegroom's gone, then it's going to be the time for mourning and sorrow and fasting and and um, not worry, but a time uh, that's not exactly to be equated as rejoicing. And of course, Yeshua is implicating himself as the bridegroom, like I said in, in the Matthew rendering, the same thing here in Mark. So he's foretelling of his own future that he's going to not always be with them right and of course he gives these details later on as, as he's as, as he's dialoguing with the disciples and letting them know you know more and more about his uh plans here on planet earth that the father has laid out for him in verse 21 he continues no one sows now he introduces these uh uh parables or analogies no one sows a piece of a uh, piece of untrunk cloth in an old garment if he does the patch tears away from it and the new from the old and a worse tear is made again um working from the the common sense um perspective of uh we're doing simply what makes sense and is applicable at the present right the bridegroom is here it's not a time for fasting and mourning it's a time for rejoicing and so this is is, it's a common sense answer and so his parable in verse 21 matches that aspect as well um again we don't even have to insert an analogy verse 22 and no one puts a new no one puts new wine into old wineskins. skins if he does the wine will burst his skins and the wine is destroyed and so are the skins but new wine is for fresh wine skin again there is there there could be an analogy here yeshua doesn't tell us that there is um, the uh, later christian church has supplied their own spiritual analogies to the stories um, but uh, we're questioning those analogies But uh, let's jump over into Luke's account now and read uh, again. uh, ESV labels this a question about fasting. uh, Starting in verse 33, And they said to him, The disciples of John fast often and offer prayers, and so do the disciples of the Pharisees, but yours eat and drink. Uh, In other words, the opposite of fasting. In other words, it's a wedding, and you guys are um, going around eating and drinking. I guess this was not the social norm, Uh, apparently. um, There's nothing in the Torah that says you have to fast at a wedding. Uh, There's nothing in the Torah that says that you have to rejoice at a wing. Again, we're talking about traditions that can go either way, right? They were neither, neither disobeying Torah, nor were they um, uh, trying to, they, the disciples, were they trying to um, kind of one-up uh, the scribes and the Pharisees, saying, hey, we're doing it the right way, and you guys are doing the wrong thing. None of that was appears to be what's going on. We're just simply having a question about why they're doing what they're doing, and Yeshua uses this opportunity to uh, 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 I guess and in, in some way, kind of school them and say, hey, you know, you guys are, some of your traditions don't make any sense to begin with. That might be the case. But other than that, it just seems to be an innocent question with an innocent answer. And the answer in verse 34, And Jesus says to them, can you make wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? And um, I suppose you could make people fast, but Yeshua's question is put in such a way that why would you, right? Um... Especially if, they, if, if in their hearts and minds they know that it's really not a time to fast. A wedding is a time to eat, drink, and be merry, right? I mean, two people are joining together, and it's a happy time. Verse 35, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in those days. And indeed, the days are coming when, you know, that phrase, the days are coming when, and then fill in the blank for whatever happens next. That shows up quite a bit in Yeshua's uh, teachings and his dialogue, and so we know that he is letting his disciples know that um, times are going to change and persecution is going to come. I'm going to be gone. I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, right? He's going to take my place uh, and help you understand the words that I left for you. He's going to empower you to lead lives that are Um, uh, holy to uh, God, and yet at the same time, you're going to be persecuted for my name's sake, for righteousness' sake, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. So those days are coming, and you know if you want to fast during those days uh, and mourn during those days because it's going to be times of sorrow, right? People are going to be losing their lives for my name. I mean, those are going to be certainly appropriate times for you to um, fast and to mourn and things like that. So that makes sense. And then he jumps into the parables again, and it's only in Luke's rendering where we have the word parable. Verse 36, he also told them a parable. And apparently, the parables, which we're going to read in Luke, include one more element. The parables seem to support the idea that this is more just common sense application. That seems to me, in my opinion, where the church should have left it. But instead, the church chose to gratuitously apply these um, spiritual allegories or kind of sermons to the story as if Jesus is trying to bring in this this uh, theology known as replacement theology. No one tears a piece of cloth from a new garment and puts it on an old garment. If he does, he, he will tear the new, and the piece from the new will not match the old. Verse 37, and no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the new wine will burst the skins, and it will be spilled, and the, and the skins will be destroyed. Verse 38, but new wine must be put into fresh wineskins. And then if you notice... At that point in time, Luke's rendering, and when we end with verse 38, Luke's rendering is identical essentially to Matthew and Mark, so that the allegory that's provided by most Christian commentaries that you read today, if you pick them up on your Bible bookstore shelf, or you listen to them from your pastor's uh, pulpits, or go to seminary and study them using your um, uh, study materials that uh, that you're going to go through if you're a student in seminary, et cetera, et cetera. The basic approach to the elements of the parable are that Jesus' teaching is incompatible with the existing Jewish worldview. And primarily, and this is, this is just my own um, experience of interacting with these materials, the primary um, uh, incompatibility is that Judaism believed that righteousness and salvation were determined by self-effort. Keeping the law of Moses was the proper way to approach God, and therefore, that was the emphasis that was being placed by first century Jewish worldview, was we need to elevate keeping the law of Moses because this is the approach that God has um, established for us in these times of the Old Testament. But, according to these same Christian theologians, Jesus is now going to be introducing a new way to approach God. God. We no longer have to keep the laws of Moses and focus on, on commandment keeping. Instead, what Jesus is going to present to us is this new way of approaching God by simply walking by faith, walking by the power of the spirit, relying and focusing on love for God and love for your neighbor and those types of things. Therefore, obedience is taking a back seat. It's being pushed out of the picture. So the old is replaced. I'm sorry, the old is being replaced by the new, the old, the old covenants and testament and people of God and standards are being pushed out of the picture in place of this new people group of God, this new uh, standards of God, this new uh, um, covenants of God, a new testament that's being written and things like that. So that's why we call this replacement theology. But if that's the case, then why does Luke supply verse 39 to the whole parabolic um, example? Let's read it no one after drinking old wine desires new for he says the old is good and i've already told you how the the word old there uh i'm sorry the word good there uh can be translated as better in fact it is translated by as better in some translations so we can say the old is better or the old is good If indeed, and you can hear me kind of um, uh, chuckling over this, if indeed the standard Christian allegorical example or interpretation is accurate, that the new is replacing the old because the new is good, the new is better, new equals Christianity, the old equals Judaism, and all that in the right? Law of Moses and people of Israel and all that stuff, that's all included with the package of old versus new. If that's the proper interpretation, then why does Yeshua introduce in verse 39 No one after drinking old wine, i.e. Judaism, desires new, i.e. Christianity, for he says the old, i.e. Judaism, is good slash better. Right? You start scratching your head going, well, that doesn't fit. And guess what? You're right. It doesn't fit. So let's just kind of stop and um, look at these passages again. We've already talked about how that the word um, uh, new, and when we talk about new wineskins and new wine, it's not even the same Greek word, koinos. Uh, uh kainos and dia, uh and um neos are the two differing greek words that are somewhat synonymous they can be synonyms in the, in certain contexts but they could also uh if the need arises um act the part of carrying a nuance of one being new chronologically like new in time and the other being new qualitatively right so it's the same thing but it's just been refreshed refurbished reinvigorated right it's it's been brought new qualitatively but it's the same old item versus the other one uh the other word acts uh plays the part of describing something that's brand new on the scene as it never existed so um we could talk about how that plays into the idea of are we replacing judaism and it's on that note that we're going to turn to david stern's commentary and pick up where we left off Um, I backed up a paragraph. We left off last week. We read the paragraph that I'm about to read again, but we're going to read it one more time so we can finish out David Stern's thoughts. David Stern is a Messianic Jew. He's the author of the Complete Jewish Bible, the Jewish New Testament, as well as the Jewish New Testament commentary. He is a Jewish believer in Jesus, which means he believes that Jesus is the Christ. He's a Christian in that regard, but he believes that Judaism is still a viable way of life. That's why he uses the term Messianic Jew. He doesn't believe the law of Moses has been discarded and done away with by Christianity. So his position is going to be radically different from those of the traditional church, Christian church. Let's read his um his conclusionary statements. He says, the meaning of the figure, and he's primarily centering on the wine aspect, right? Because that's the part that's kind of most marked when we're talking about this old and new incompatibility uh, aspect. The meaning of the figure is that the new wine of messianic living right? Christianity cannot be poured into old religious forms if they remain rigid. David Stern is working under the same, uh, same, um, assumption that I am that the average standard historical popular Christian perspective of replacing the Torah with the law of Christ, replacing Israel with the Gentile Christian church, replacing the old Testament with the new Testament, et cetera, et cetera. Um, all of that is inaccurate. um, He's still working from an allegory, David Stern is, but he's going to spin it differently in a positive way so that we can end up um, reforming Judaism and retaining a Jewish way of life, a Torah observant way of life, and indeed, we don't have to throw out the baby with the bathwater. I call this section of my commentary, Old Man, New Man, and Messianic Judaism. And the reason I do so is because, as we're going to see later on when we get to Tim Haig's comments, it's not necessary to think of, of throwing out the old system altogether when we can simply take yeshua's words if indeed he's using an allegory we can take yeshua's words and apply them along the level of what yeshua's talking about reform from the inside out not necessarily throwing out all of the religious um social systems of the day right that's not the type of reform he's talking about rather yeshua's always been pushing the envelope on if you want to be acceptable to God, my father and your father, or our father, then you need to start with a change on the inside. The change that needs to take place and the change that matters the most is something that's invisible to most people. It's on the inside. It's the heart level. That is the challenge that Shua is going to over and over emphasize. He's going to emphasize over and over and over again in his teachings and his instructions and his challenging words. So, let's pick up David Stern again. If, uh, David Stern says, but if the old religious forms become fresh, right, notice the word fresh in his commentaries in italic quotes, is because that's the Greek word um, uh, kainos rather than neos, fresh, as in refreshed or renewed or reinvigorated or refurbished or something like that. We've given the example of um, if I were to buy a refurbished laptop from Apple, which you can do, then you, you're of the understanding that it's not a brand new laptop that has never been owned or never been opened out of the package. It is in fact, an, a laptop that's been, um, reworked or repaired, or, um, you know, they wiped the OS clean and reinstalled it again or something. Either way, it's not a brand new, it's a used laptop in that sense, but it's been refurbished by Apple. Uh, so that it feels brand new to you. But the reality is that it's it's not a brand new laptop. And, and you get a discounted price for that. And for many people that meets their needs. Other people are like, no, I want a brand new, never before open, never before used, never before owned by anyone laptop. And if that's the case, then we would opt for a different Greek word if we were applying that. So we have two Greek words. We have neos. I'll flash these on the screen and post for us. We have neos, which represents new in the um parables in the, the uh that Yeshua should reference in terms of new wine naos is the word that's used there new as in brand new new chronologically new wine naos which the root word is naos or neo and comparatively when he talks about wine skins he doesn't use the word naos he used the word kainos or kainos if you want to kainos however you want to pronounce the greek uh however you were trained and studied greek I pronounce it kainas. Uh, that's how I w- that's how I learned it. And this is the word that David Stern is rendering fresh in his commentary using the quotes. Um, it doesn't have to mean chronologically new, it can carry the nuance of um, new in quality. And if the old religious forms become refreshed, or fresh as in refurbished, um, reworked, then they can accommodate Yeshua. And he goes on to say, when Kainos is rendered new, as in many translations, and I mentioned that... Um, it, it does show up as new in um let me try to think to myself i think it's uh not i think it maybe niv might be one of the uh, translations that renders it uh new we'll go back and look at that um like comparative translations um a different day maybe next week or something uh but he says i'm um, sorry i left off my coat there um when kainas is rendered new, as in many English translations that you can pick up, then the implication seems to be that Judaism, and this is the translation that you're gonna, this is the interpretation that you're gonna find in most Christian commentaries. Judaism cannot possibly be a suitable framework for honoring Yeshua, the Jewish Messiah. Only the new wineskin of Gentilized Christianity. Will work and so it's no wonder that many forms of gentile christianity that exist today don't have any real appreciation for the jewish worldview which it includes which includes with it the people of israel uh having a primary place at god's table the law of moses having a relevancy in people's lives the tanakh uh, having a place of preeminence when it comes to bible study and things like that so it's no wonder that many christians are proud of saying we're new testament christians and by that they don't just mean that they've been redeemed by jesus and that they've been set free and that's what they mean by new covenant experience they typically also whether they imply it or not whether they know it or not they typically are also including with that description of new testament christian they're typically including with that the baggage of replacement theology that we don't keep the law of moses anymore as a gentile christian church we don't have to jesus brought the new we don't need the old Jesus is the type we don't look to the shadows anymore I've been di- recently having a dialogue with someone who's um, um been watching my YouTube videos and leaving comments and his point that he's trying to make is that Jesus brought the reality, so why do we need the shadows anymore right like, like like Paul's um discussion in words in Colossians about um uh shadows and things like that right Jesus is the body why do we look to the shadows, which is the old testament? Why why do we need that? As if the the shadow is a pejorative or a negative or a bad thing to bring into our life. But um most Christians are gonna say, uh, well, I'm a New Testament Christian, therefore I don't need Judaism anymore anymore. This is a peculiar conclusion, David Stern continues, especially if we recalled that Yeshua was speaking with his fellow Jews, right? And he goes on to say that is rendered here in the uh the point. Is that the only vessel which can hold the new wine of messianic life, right? Yeshua's teaching in a Jewish setting is a properly renewed, restored, reconditioned. Sorry, let me scroll up there, start over. Uh, a a messianic life as a Jewish setting is a properly renewed, restored, reconditioned, and refreshed Judaism, such as messianic Judaism was in the first century and it aims to be now. And so, he's gonna champion, he's gonna push his case. That Messianic Judaism is viable. It was viable then. It's viable now, right? Um, let's keep reading David Stern's commentary. Taken together, this is the conclusion he comes to. Verse 16 and 17, talking about Matthew, imply that both Messianic faith and Judaism should adjust to each other, right? You remember, in one, uh, in, uh, when he says adjust to each other, what he means is he's reminding us that in the parable of the cloth, right? We have a new patch and an old cloth, and we recondition the patch before introducing it to the cloth, to the old clothing, to the garment. So in the first parable, the first part, the patch, right, the new piece, the one that's coming from the outside of the uh, story, uh, is the part that needs to recondition itself. We need to wash the patch first before we sew it to the old garment. But in the uh, parable of the wine skins and we're introducing new wine to old wine skins, new to old it's not the new that needs to recondition itself it's the old that needs to make the adjustment. Are you carefully catching the details here? so if we just read the story and look at just the details even at a face value level um uh there are some slightly different details, and that's what David Stern's trying to say is if we put the two and overlap them, the um part of the the, part of the story about the patch and the part of the story about the wine if we overlap those two then we come to the conclusion that both parts need to adjust to each other so there's some adjustment going on between two he says however the accommodating must be true to god's word on that there is no room on that there's no room for compromise and he he suggests that you see uh 1352 uh, of his commentary and following. And I, if I were to click on that footnote number nine there, I lifted that from his uh Jewish Testament commentary, which I don't need to do. Let's uh, see. Um I didn't get much further uh than uh I did uh last week. I mean I read one little paragraph. And I don't really jump wanna jump uh into um do I want to let me see. Let's read this part here. I'm going to read it without stopping. And this will kind of give us a uh, wetter appetite for next week. Um, I say in my commentary, these are my own thoughts, right? Do you see how much better David Stern's version or his view, is his interpretation, it fits with the overall historic message of both Tanakh and Abstock scriptures than do the views of the previously examined mainline Christian positions on these verses. Of course, we're comparing... The um, kind of representative replacement theology view where the old is Judaism and the new is Christianity and the old is out and the new is in. With David Stern's interpretation of no, we don't need to throw out the old called Judaism. We simply just need to work with the existing elements and allow God's word to make the changes where applicable or, um, you know, the um, the stretching uh, and things like that where it's, where it's needed. I continue, Yeshua's words were not said in a vacuum. And I remind this to people reading my commentary uh, in modern times here, because oftentimes we, we we're so quick to jump from the first century worldview, where everything was really um, Jewish-centric, and we want to jump all the way 2,000 years into the future to our own worldview and our own church settings which have been Gentilized, where we don't have an appreciation for Judaism, the Tanakh, the Torah, the Law of Moses, Israel as a people, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. We want to make this um, anachronistic leap uh, and apply that to Yeshua's words. But Yeshua's words weren't said in a vacuum. What do I say? They were presented to a group of first-century Jewish people following a Torah that was given to the nation of Israel over a thousand years earlier. What does this mean? It implies that this means if one leaps past the context of the first century, like many Christian commentaries do, I know they're well-meaning, but they're not really playing by the best hermeneutic practices when it comes to interpreting the Bible from the historical grammatical method so if you practice this form of interpretation that i'm calling it uh, uh, replacement theology where the old is out the new is in then you're not going to end up with the best interpretation that um fits really what yeshua was trying to um teach so it means i say uh if one leaps past the context of the first century and immediately begins to inadvertently apply yeshua's parable to 21st century false religions, then one will necessarily miss the main point of the master's words in favor of one's own pretext, right? Well, what do we always say? Um, words without context are only pretext. And that's the danger when you're, replace, when you're um, replacing the context of the passages with your own um, personal opinion, right? I've, I've been through Bible studies where this happens. And the leaders of the Bible study maybe not even aware that they're doing it, but they'll read a, a passage of scripture and then they'll look up, up at the group and they'll say, okay, now let's go around the room and you tell me what this passage means to you. And as well-meaning as it is, right? I mean, it's, it's great that you're trying to get the input from the audience to find out how the, the Bible has impacted their lives at that moment, right? Tell me what this means to you. As well-meaning as it sounds, it's skipping a very important step, in my opinion. Instead of asking the people, what does this passage mean to you? The first thing you should ask is what did it mean to the people in the passage? Yeshua didn't speak in a vacuum. There were people around him that were listening to his words. What was the social worldview of their day? What were the religious norms of their day? What were the cultural expectations that they had given the elements that were present before them, right? There was no Gentile Christian church for them to fall back into or to skip over to. Right. So asking how it impacted them first is the best way uh, to start your interpretation of the the scriptures. I know we're going a little bit over in our time, so just bear with me. Let me keep reading a little bit more of this. So I say in my my, um, uh, commentary that context is king and really context uh, wins the crown over and over. Context is king, which means that context allows us sometimes to take words that are used in passage A and apply them one way. And then take those very same words that are used in passage B and apply them a different way, even though they're the exact same phrase and words, right? Why? It's because context changes sometimes from passage to passage. Give you a good case in point. Works of the law in Galatians is used, in my opinion, very limited uh, by Paul. Works of the law. Um, it's used in a very narrow scope to deal with a very pointed problem that was. Take, that was plaguing the Galatian communities, this works of law phenomenon. But we take that same phrase and apply it to Romans, and we get a slightly different context that is facing the Roman crowd, the Roman um, communities that Paul was writing to in Rome. It's the same phrase, works of law, work work of the law, works, law works, or things like that, depending how you translate the Greek, and things like that. But we can end up with slightly different Um, applications and interpretations and they're both applicable we have a kind of a more narrow use of the phrase works of law in galatians that becomes a little bit more broad and elastic in romans and it could be maybe more um relative to our 21st century needs when we're talking about combating legalism and and works righteousness and merit theology and things like that um so it's the same phrase but different context and that's maybe just one example um i could bring up dozens but let's keep reading just this paragraph and then i'll close tonight i go on to say and context demands that the parable be applied to the immediate listeners and readers first right just like i said don't instantly try to say lord what does this mean to me ask god to explain to you what the passage means or meant to them. That's going to be your first and best step. Um, I continue. Uh, context demands that the parable be applied to the immediate listeners and readers first before making secondary and tertiary application for others, including yourself. I go on to say, yes, false religions are incompatible with the true quote-unquote religion of Yeshua's Lord and King. But that is not even the central point of the parable, as we're going to find out, I say in my commentary, as we shall uh, find out in Haig's comments below, which we're going to read next week. I I conclude, therefore, any later Christian application that opts for an interpretation that teaches the destruction of Judaism in favor of the establishment of Christianity, in my opinion... You ready for this? I'm going to drop the bomb on you. Actually destroys the intended meaning of Yeshua's parable and even ends up presenting a form of replacement theology to unsuspecting Christians. And that's really the meat of of my commentary and the point that I'm trying to drive home by writing the commentary. I'm not trying to slam Christian authors and show how much better and more accurate my position is than theirs because I know the context and you don't. It's not the point of my commentary. Um, I have the highest respect for the Christian authors that I selected and brought into my, um, my own study. The point I'm trying to bring up is that we often operate unknowingly with a blindness. We often operate with a bias, and sometimes that blindness or that bias is determined by simply our own Christian narrative that has not properly been introduced to the Jewish worldview. Indeed, we don't often have the tools to uh, probe all of those details. We're, we're not presented with those choices as average Christians, so we don't we're not even aware that they are optional ways of. Um, interacting with the text we just simply dismiss them out of hand because that's the um kind of the standard way of reading the scriptures in the bible that we've been raised with so we've been given this kind of standard gentilized christian narrative that fits um our worldview of 21st century and you know because many of us don't even uh interact with jewish people or or tor observant religious jews or things like that um and so we we don't even know that there's a better way or maybe a a more accurate way of interpreting the passage. we just think well this fits right christianity is the new way of living but i'm trying to challenge us to the idea that there are better ways to interpret the passage that are more historically and sociologically accurate and i think this is one of those cases let's uh stop uh the study for now like i said i went a little bit over about five to ten minutes over than I normally go. Um, that'll do it for Judaism. Bec- these are live internet studies brought to you week after week by myself, Ariel Ben-Lyman Hanavi. I'm a torture to congregation, Kei Latunvada Harvest in Thornton, Colorado. Find us online at grafting.com and join us in, in person for our live Sabbath services. But if you're not able to join us, at least as I mentioned, join us online and um, you can see the link to the video right there on my screen as well. These uh, live internet studies are a part of my own um, Torah teaching ministry, which parks itself on the web at com. That's T-E-T-Z-E-T-O-R-A-H.com. I'd love to have you join me at my own home uh, personal website there and uh, browse around and take a look through all the uh, commentaries that you see on my screen right now as well. I also have a YouTube channel that I'd be delighted if you uh, popped in and uh, took a look around there as well youtube.com forward slash c forward slash Tetsay torah ministries if you do hit my website uh my youtube channel there be sure to uh, take notice that i update the uh site essentially daily uploading videos daily make sure then to subscribe hit the bell for notifications leave thumbs up for all the videos that you like Um, Leave me some comments and questions about things you have um, uh, your own thoughts on. And be sure to share the content with your other friends and family members in your social media circles, okay? Just some brief important uh, details. If you'd like to join us for our live studies, be sure to get access to Skype somehow. If you're on my website right now... uh, during the live study, and you click on that blue Skype link, it'll actually open up Skype in your browser, and you can just join us right there. And we hope you can join us live, because we engage in uh, live Q&A after the study is over, opening up the microphones, and it's exclusively to the um, uh, live studies um, uh, that we uh, enjoy, engage in that live study uh, Q&A. But if not, um, take one last moment to scroll to the very bottom of my website where you can see some Hebrew writing and the black section down there and uh, preferably consider partnering with me to take the Torah around the world uh, in this particular format you can click on the little yellow donate button and um, bless me that way with your uh, financial gifts and contributions and I'm so uh, blessed to be able to be in a place where I can receive uh, your generous gifts uh, thank you to all of those who have given in the past and are continuing to give I'm so Uh, thrilled to be on the receiving end of of your generosity. And as I always say, be blessed as you seek to be a blessing to others. Let's turn to exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's pick up where we left off. We've been working our way through a section in my commentary, uh, point number seven, entitled, uh, of paper three, entitled, Who or What is the Holy Spirit Revisiting the Holy Spirit Passages from paper two? And There are a list of um, verses as I scroll down to my commentaries, you're going to encounter them. There are a list of verses that are um, under the label of Holy Spirit, and we can see titles and attributes and names and actions that describe a passage, right? Um, And we're focusing on the Holy Spirit. We're not looking exactly at the passages right now. We kind of dead ended at, I think, um, the Holy Spirit sanctifies. Uh right there in First Peter 1, 2. And then I decided to jump into this excursus material. I first looked at Paul's letter to the book of Romans chapter 8, where Paul uses this language of Holy Spirit, Spirit, the Greek word would be pneuma or pneuma, however you've been taught to pronounce it. And we've been working from that material where we did like a little mini excursus just on Romans chapter 8. And then from there... I decided to pull in this commentary from a Christian gentleman by the name of Roberto Pereira who wrote this commentary on the Spirit of God in Paul's writings. And now we're in this commentary and we're reading through this. It's a short little um, essay and I'm reading through some of his notes. And so we're now ready to pick up this commentary, his commentary again, in this um, uh, paragraph entitled The Three Are God. So let me just pick up where he left off uh, and keep reading. He writes, Although it's not difficult to notice that the first theologian of the new testament era describes the spirit and the son as fully god there are those who argue against the divinity of the holy spirit let me pause and interject i on a regular basis i interda- i interact via uh, email and youtube comments with non-trinitarian uh folks some of them are believers some of them are not believers many of them are just simply non-trinitarian This includes many Unitarians or Christadelphians, uh, Jehovah's Witnesses, um, Iglesia Ni Cristo. Uh, Some people I can't identify what religious um, denomination they uh, affiliate with. They don't tell me, even though I ask them. All I can tell is that they're non-Trinitarian. The way I can tell is by the way they interact with my own material, my own YouTube videos. They, they, They object to my presentation of God as Trinity. And when it comes to... Discussing God the Father as tripart right a tripart God tripersonal um it's not difficult to argue the case that God is one because of the heavy amount of verses that show up in the Old Testament, speaking of God's oneness. so when we get to the New Testament and Jesus is introduced into the picture, then we have to start arguing about um is God one, is he three, et cetera, et cetera, because is Jesus God? Likewise when we turn to the topic of the second person of the trinity that that actually occupies the bulk of um apologetic uh discussions of you know god's oneness versus his threeness it's it's because of the introduction of jesus into history that we're even having this discussion really about the oneness and the threeness of god um at least that's my perspective my take on the whole um uh discussion in the first place it's it's because of jesus actions his words and what paul wrote about jesus afterwards after jesus left that uh the whole notion of you know how is how are we to understand god what i'm trying to imply is that if you only read the tanakh the old testament you don't get a heavy dose of trinitarian Um, dialogue thrown in your face. It's only until you start reading through the New Testament and the words of Jesus and the words of Paul that you start contemplating this idea of a complex, tri-personal God. But when we get to the Holy Spirit, we end up with a bit of a quandary, a bit of a pickle for us Trinitarians. And the challenge is this. The Holy Spirit by very nature is a very, his role in history and in salvation history um, is very kind of backseatish very, um, not in your face. Like in other words, it's almost like the diametrical opposite of Yeshua. Yeshua is the front man. If we were talking about like a band, Yeshua is the front man, right? He's Bono, right? Or is it Bono? I always can get that confused. Is it Bono or Bono? Um, right. He's, he's, he's Mick Jagger, right? If we're talking about bands, um you know he's he's michael jackson in, in the in the in the in the um the the jackson five right he's the guy that you think of he's the lead singer he's the one that that you see on the front curve that you zero in on um you know he's the one if anything when the band breaks up he's going to start his own uh group right or his own go solo or whatever um i hope you guys aren't i aren't um uh put off by my uh, analogies of, of music and things like that I hope it's not considered irreverent but the point i'm trying to make is that yeshua is the very visible um aspect of god's program and and dealings with mankind in history and rightfully so um the father is enthralled to put yeshua to the forefront and bring him to the front and the focal point of mankind's dealings with god here on earth god is fine with that that's the way he designed it but the holy spirit is quite the opposite he takes his um, almost entirely subservient role to both yeshua and the father right he allows himself to be um uh sent uh, by the father and the son right In john chapters 14 15 16 17 that whole upper uh, room discourse and um the holy spirit then doesn't Play this prominent role of how do we fit him in with the triadic God, the tripart God, the tripersonal God? So this author is introducing this idea as well. There are those who argue against the divinity of the Holy Spirit, and it's because there aren't a lot of passages that help us to rightly understand his role and his place in this tripersonal God we serve. Let's pick up this author's reading again. It is argued, this author says, that in the Pauline Trinitarian texts. The Spirit appears together with the Father and or the Son, right? Recall Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 13 and 14, Ephesians 2 and 4, Philippians 3, Hebrews 2, uh, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 10. This author believes that, I mean, this author is including Hebrews in with Paul's writings as if to assume that Paul wrote Hebrews, which I don't believe he did, but it's not that's neither here nor there. The point the author is bringing up is that um oftentimes um the holy spirit is sometimes simply described as if he's the spirit of god um another way of describing god indeed this is more or less the standard traditional um unitarian perspective is that the holy spirit is not a third person of the trinity he's simply another way or it is simply another way of describing god's very own spirit the Jehovah's witnesses take the same perspective the the spirit is not a he he's an it it is an impersonal force of God, or it is the power of God demonstrated here on earth etc um, etc. Et it is the inspiration of God that can be um, uh, that can be implanted into the life of a believer for the purpose of sanctifying and empowering a believer and etc et etc cetera, et cetera. and I agree with certain aspects of that argument from that perspective because God is a spirit. And God sends his very spirit. And there are times when the verses that we're reading are best understood as God himself as that spirit coming into our lives and interacting with us on that level to where we interpret the interaction as us and God versus us and the Holy Spirit. In other words, it's first person versus third person. But but Paul's going to bring in all of these um, details in other passages that challenge that view and help us stretch our our understanding of the Bible to include the idea that the Holy Spirit is actually a third person as well let's keep reading this this author we've already mentioned in our discussion that we can find in Paul's letters texts where two members of the Trinity are present either the father and the son on one hand like Romans 6 1 Corinthians 15 and uh, etc or the son and the spirit on the other Romans 15 1 Corinthians 6 Philippians 2 Hebrews 10 in the latter case, right, where we have um, Son and Spirit, both the Son and the Spirit are displayed in equality with the Father. And that's where we get the idea that the Spirit is full deity. And this is a reminder I need to make to my Unitarian friends who, keep, who watch my commentaries and challenge me with their comments in my YouTube videos. When the Bible uses the term deity, which it doesn't use very often, or, or um, a Greek term that equates to... Um, uh, divine something like that deity divine we have to remind ourselves that from a first century worldview this was not a heavily philosophical argument there weren't they weren't trying to purposely jump into an ontological argument uh, like a, a um an analytical uh, discussion like dale tuggy might have dr tuggy or something like that where suddenly they're they're philosophically describing the the ontological makeup of God his inner nature, and things like that with this phrase divine from the first century perspective, as far as we can uncover by using um, uh, not just the Bible but extra biblical sources that help us understand the language that is being used in the first century, you know Hebrew Aramaic, and Greek etc, what well, we can ascertain by by the best greek scholars is that the terms that we interpret as deity or divine were simply words that were chosen chosen to describe a quality or element or attribute of god that was unique to god something that helped us plug into his essence that was unique and exclusive to god so that when we say that god is divine or that god is deity we're describing an attribute that's um, essential to his nature. It's not something that God takes on. It's something that God is. It's essential to him. It can't be divested from him. It can't be stripped away from him. Rather, to a- attribute this um, quality to God, or attribute, or character trait, you know, you can fill in the blank with whatever ad- ad- adjective you want, if you if you like, but it, it amounts to the same um, uh, uh, final point, is that this term is exclusive to god and it's essential to god uh and that's the point that the first century authors are trying to make up so it's proprietary if you want to use modern terminology right it's it's owned by god and only owned by god it's it's copyrighted by god right um so it's 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 cannot be utilized by someone else or something else only god is divine only god uh, has divinity right he is the only one that's deity. He's the only one. And that's why when we introduce the, the son of God and the spirit of God as also sharing in the divine or deity qualities of God, we're putting them in that same camp and category as the exclusive one and only God. And indeed, this makes them God. It, it by nature forces them into that particular category so that we have two categories before us. We have the creature on one hand, and we have the creator on the other hand. Everything falls into those two, two, two categories. The created, I can say, not just creature. We have the created, and we have the creator. And those are the only two categories that are before us in the Bible. If Jesus is not on the side of creator, then by default, he's on the side of created. Holy Spirit, if he's not on the side of creator, then he's on the side of created something that was whipped up by God in his mind, et etc. et cetera. So that's what the author is trying to um, remind us of. In the latter case, both the Son and the Spirit are displayed in, in equality with the Father, meaning they're on the category of deity or divine. Thus, it would be strange to consider in these texts, one of the beings as not having full divinity. That's my reminder to you Unitarians that are constantly trying to school me and tell me that Jesus is a creature, that the Holy Spirit is just an impersonal force he's a he's a he's a thing that god whipped up in his mind or something like that let's keep reading this author in addition paul quotes from quotes texts from the old testament referring to yahweh and applies him to the holy spirit um referencing jeremiah 31 hebrews which is used in hebrews we also have a quote from uh or a reference to exodus 25 as well as hebrews 9 psalm 95 and hebrews 3. Um and Isaiah 64 in uh 1 Corinthians 2 9. So basically, what the author is reminding us of if we if we look at Hebrews, it's borrowing the terminology from Jeremiah. If we look at Hebrews in another place, it's borrowing terminology from Exodus. You look at Hebrews in another in a third place, it's borrowing terminology from the book of Psalms. And if we look at First Corinthians, Paul's borrowing terminology from the book of Isaiah. So the New Testament is purposely pulling in information from the old testament because we're working from the same source god is the only god there is and so any discussion on jesus and the holy spirit is going to have to defer back to those primary sources of god as that as that um identifying um uh, first cause or first deity or first source uh, you know creatorship and things like that this author continues how am I doing on time? Still got about five minutes left. This author continues. He also mentions that the Spirit, speaking of Paul, he also mentions that the Spirit pours divine love and grace on the believer in Romans uh, 5, Romans 15, 2 Corinthians 6, Galatians 5, uh, Philippians 2, and Colossians 1. And that He, the Holy Spirit, is the power from God in Romans 15. So, again, we're talking about the identity of the Holy Spirit as is uh, articulated by Paul himself. Paul knew that God was only one God. Paul is not going to start suddenly introducing this idea that Jesus is a second god and the Holy Spirit is a third god or something like that. Paul recognizes that there is one divine God, one deity called God, and yet this divine this deity known as God, he's tripersonal in his um complexity um it's hard to put your finger on right paul uses paul's the one who chose the greek word musterion right which from which we get our english word mystery paul's the one that introduces this idea that god is mystery and yet god is is transcendent and yet he's close he's personal those are the, that's the tension that we have to hold Jesus brings God to us up close and in our face, right? He, he's fond of saying, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, and vice versa. I and the Father are one. I'm in the Father and Father is in me, right? introducing this very complex, maybe Greek concept of perichoresis, perichoresis and things like that. Uh, this this which is a fancy Greek term that that refers to I in oh, A being inside of B and B being inside of A, et etc. Cetera, et cetera, right. The the like kind of this um difficult concept of jesus being in the father and father being in jesus that's what i mean by uh, perichoresis um but from paul's perspective god was transcendent he's beyond our understanding and yet at the same time through the messiah god is personal so we can't leave god being distant and we can't um uh only collapse god into being personal he's both at the same time He's transcendent and he's personal. And that's the tension that Paul is going to have to hold as a a writer. Um, This author continues, like the father and the son, the spirit is eternal in, in the book of Hebrews. He's omniscient in 1 Corinthians and he's called holy, being implied here that his holiness is that which belongs to God and therefore not the kind of holiness which is derived from created beings or created things, right? We have to remember, God didn't only create living beings, but he also created elements. The universe is comprised of non-living elemental properties, right? Um, uh, power, and energy, and heat, and, and other types of um, basic uh, what we might call um, physical properties that exist in the universe that are not defined as living things. So here's my example, electricity. Electricity is not a living being. It's not a, it's not a, a personal, uh, 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 it's not a personal object. It has no personality at all that I'm aware of. And if it does, please write into me, and explain to me how you have come to the conclusion that electricity is a living thing. But as far as I understand, electricity is not alive now it has power right that's to be sure right if i plug my fingers in the socket i'm gonna be introduced to its power i'd rather not do that however it was created by god it didn't just happen by chance it didn't whip itself up into existence it didn't think itself into existence it didn't evolve on its own right according to darwin so electricity is a creation from god or the force of electricity or the source of electricity um was created by God himself, and yet it's not a living thing. The Holy Spirit is not a creature that was created by God. we know that he's living right unless you're of that denomination that he's not a living thing then he's a then he's a a construct he's a thing he's a i i'm i c i'm saying he because that's the way i think it's a thing it's 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 an impersonal force right it's it's electricity um no Um, when we talk about holiness, we're talking about another, um, um, inalienable attribute of God, something that cannot be uh, stripped from God. Holiness is not just something that God thinks up or that he puts on like an article of clothing when he feels like wearing it that day. Holiness is one of his essential attributes. It's, um, it's part of who God is, right? It cannot be divested from him is the point I'm trying to make. You can't remove holiness from God. And thus when, the Holy Spirit, by very nature, his name, right, the Penuma or Hagion, depending on how you're looking at the case, um, Penuma Tohagyu, his name even includes the word holy or holiness in it, right? He shares the same uh, attributes and qualities as God the Father. Let's finish out tonight with this um, part of the author's commentary here. Like the Son, the Spirit performs deeds that are due only to God, right? Notice these exclusive. And um signature deeds that help us to identify the role and function of the Holy Spirit and identify him with God. Um, this happens with Yeshua as well. We find Yeshua doing things that only God should be able to do, which leads us to the conclusion that he must be very God walking among us and indeed, the Jewish people who were um, witnessing many of the things that he did or the words that he was saying, they came to that conclusion even in their blindness as religious Jews, even though they weren't accepting him as the very Son of God. And the Messiah of their personal lives, they nevertheless were intelligent enough to um, um, opinionate that he's doing things that are otherwise exclusive to the God that we call God and signature uh, to God himself. He's doing things that shouldn't be done by an ordinary human. And they're right. They caught that. Dr. Tuggy likes to say, no, these guys are like the Three Stooges, and why should we even trust their accounts when they say, oh, you're making yourself out to be God? We can't trust that. Their opinion was accurate. No, actually, we can, Dr. Tuggy. I'm afraid you're inaccurate there. This author goes on to say, Like the Son, the Spirit performs deeds that are due only to God. He is the giver of life, both physical and spiritual, in Romans 8, 1 Corinthians 15, 2 Corinthians 3. He, speaking of the Spirit, testifies with our spirit that we have been adopted as children of God, in Romans chapter 8. And he also uses that adoption language. I'm adding this. The author doesn't say this. Um, Paul also uses that adoption language, speaking of the Spirit, in uh, Galatians chapter 4. Right? Daddy God. This author continues and concludes, and this is where we'll stop tonight. It is through him, speaking of the Spirit, that the believer is washed, justified, and sanctified. 1 Corinthians 6. The Spirit bestows spiritual gifts in 1 Corinthians 12. And to help in the divine mission of salvation, The Spirit does as well, right? Those spiritual gifts are necessary for the divine mission of salvation. I've said this before um, that if you read through the Bible and you read through the creation account, who created the universe? The Trinity created the universe. Even though the text says in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Um, we go on to read about the spirit's activity and the word, the spoken word of God is part of the activity as well. So it's really um Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are all present during the creation account likewise with the new creation the regeneration of a of the inside of a person right so um we have physical creation and we have spiritual creation when a new person is created right when a person is born again all three persons of the trinity are also in the picture and that's what the author is reminding us the spirit bestows spiritual gifts to help in the divine mission of salvation that new creation and he concludes with this sentence He is the source of inspiration of the Bible, according to the familiar passage, 2 Timothy 3.16. And that's where we'll leave off tonight. We'll pick this up next week with Father, Son, and Spirit, three distinct persons. But that'll do it for exploring the Shema discussions on the issues of Trinity. Let's turn now to the liturgy real quick and bring our study to a close. We're in Jeremiah 31, and we started in verse 31 two weeks ago. We read 32 last week. Let's scroll down now and look at verse thirty three in our study for our liturgy the prophet says for this is the covenant speaking of this brit this new covenant for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of israel after those days declares the lord i will put my law within them and i will write it on their hearts and i will be their god and they shall be my people such a wonderful promise if you want to be in the kingdom with the king and you want to walk according to his righteous edicts and statutes and, and commandments then you must allow the king to put his laws within you that's what God says I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts what does it say in the Hebrew over on the um, right side of the page there the Hebrew says ki zot habrit asher echot et hayamim natati Let's turn now to the book of Galatians. We've been looking at Galatians chapter 3. We started in verse 10 two weeks ago. We read verse 11 last week. Now let's read verse 12. Paul speaking about this righteous law of God and its relationship to us as believers, and how the law points us to Messiah, but in and of itself, it's powerless to save us. Paul says, This law is not of faith. Rather, the one who does the law, or does the commandment, does them, shall live by them. This is a wonderful passage as well. I wish I could go into detail. I point you to my Galatians commentary at tatesetorah.com. Look under Galatians 3 and scroll down to my comments on verse 12. We looked at a little bit of this last week, uh, but go back and study some of that as well. It's a great passage to look up on your own. The law is not of faith. What does the Greek say over on the right side of the page? Paul says, And that'll do it for our liturgy for tonight. Let's turn now to the, um, to the short little uh, video. Um, And after we watch the video, we'll simply dismiss in prayer. Okay, you guys ready? Here we go. Short questions, short answers. By Torah teacher Ariel and eBible, they bring the questions and I bring the answers, and together we arrive at some conclusions. Here's our question on the table for tonight. What made some animals clean and others unclean? Yeah, let's continue talking about what we talked about last week, okay? FYI, this current answer is really a follow-up answer to last week's topic. You can also watch my lengthier answer to a similar topical question at this YouTube video link. Upper right corner, I'm going to add a little link to last or to a previous study that I did that's going to help you understand. Leviticus chapter 11 and Deuteronomy chapter 14 are key passages in outlining to the people of God which animals are permitted food and which are not, and we're actually going to exegete chapter 11 in the longer study with, uh, tonight. A good way to interpret the Leviticus and Deuteronomy texts is to affirm that God created certain animals intrinsically tame, that is, unclean, and others intrinsically tahor, that is, clean. What do I mean by those terms? Well, we'll explain it a little later, but for now, we're talking about something in the design that God uh, used when he created animals. These terms are not defects in the animals themselves. Rather, this speaks of the superior intellect of a creator that is in control over the ecosystem that he created. So he created all living things to work together, to function with one another. And I like to think that God designed both clean and unclean animals to play their own unique roles in keeping his creation running smoothly as a collective whole. you understand what I mean? We're going to look at some examples here just briefly and get just slightly scientific. A variety of water-dwelling creatures, for example, function as cleaners. In that they help keep other water-dwelling organisms free of infections around wounds or harmful parasites, etc. Right? Isn't that a really neat feature that God built into His own ecosystem to have uh, animals helping one another? Also, uh, we can observe that some land-dwelling creatures eat carrion, thus helping to recycle nitrogen and carbon in animal remains. Right? From animals that die naturally. Naturally, obviously, I'm describing types of bio logical symbiosis right where where the animals are working together with one another and if we think about removing animals then we upset the equation so even if we argue against this logic based on our lack of understanding then we can't argue that god told noah to gather two of each kind of every unclean animal into the ark while also commanding him to collect seven couples of the clean animals right that's an interesting feature Let's read the verse here. Adonai said to Noach, come into the ark, you and all your household, for I have seen that you alone in this generation are righteous before me. Of every clean animal, you are to take seven couples, and of the animals that are not clean, one couple. You guys read that? Yeah, that's interesting. Sometimes we skip over those particular features. It goes on to say, Also of the birds in the air take seven couples in order to preserve their species throughout the earth. That's Genesis 7, 1-3 as rendered from the CJB, David Stern's version. So it appears to be that clean and unclean then do not seem to be limited to the Torah that Moshe handed down. After all, Noach lived thousands of years prior to any written Torah that we know of right? So we're reading about clean and unclean and yet how did Noah know? Well, I think we can provide some answer. God knew which animals were clean and which were unclean. Why? Because he made them that way and he obviously endowed Noah with a way to tell. We don't know how but uh, we, we do know. And all of this was long before he told Moshe to pen Leviticus and Deuteronomy. So God knew God told Noah. We didn't see how God told Noah, but somehow he told him, and thus Noah knew how to carry out the instructions that God gave him, even though we don't have it in the text as to how Noah was able to do that. Okay, all right, that's my short study. Check out my podcasts, which are available on iTunes. You can search for me in the store under the search term Ariel Hanavi. But if you prefer to watch your theology, check out my YouTube channel, subscribe to my YouTube channel, and click the bell for notifications. New content is added weekly or even daily. that'll do it for the video for tonight. Let's dismiss in prayer. Abba, I bless your name. And I'm so grateful for um, the fact that you have given us your words of life and that you poured out your whole spirit so that we can understand them. Thank you for the example that has been left for us by your son, Yeshua, so that we have um, an example to follow after. We have a model for us, a perfect example of what it means to lead a life that's pleasing to you, Lord. And that's filled by the power of the spirit. Jesus did the things he can do because he was anointed by the very spirit. And so this is the model for our life. If we want to be pleasing to you and be empowered by you, we need to walk as Yeshua walked and we need to be filled with the same spirit that he himself was filled with. And so help us, Lord, to continue to press in and um, uh, be that type of witness for you here on earth. Thank you for uh, the participation of the students, both in the live class, as well as those who join me uh, for these live internet studies. Thank you for the people who listen to my podcasts week after week and help support me in this um, precious endeavor. Uh, continue to bless us, raise us up, protect us, and heal us, and we'll give you the praise and the glory of Hashem Yeshua. Amen.